It's Friday, April 1st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the human genome has finally been completely sequenced 22 years after the initial essentially complete version was published. Plus, in another early 2000s follow-up, the Star Wars kid breaks his silence two decades later. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. 22 years ago, a draft of the sequenced human genome was completed. It was a huge milestone achievement, and now, after more than two decades, the complete sequence has finally been published. Quoting The Guardian, Until now, about 8% of the human genome was missing, including large stretches of highly repetitive sequences, sometimes described as junk DNA. In reality, though, these repeated sections were omitted due to technical difficulties in sequencing them rather than pure lack of interest, end quote. Eric Green, the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, explained further in Scientific American that scientists working on the original Human Genome Project never set out to sequence all 3 billion human DNA bases. They wanted to be as comprehensive as possible, he says, but they set practical bounds for themselves, preventing, quote, perfection from becoming the enemy of the good. End quote. And I really appreciated hearing that. To know that the Human Genome Project got 92% of the way there and then recognized that going any further would be a detriment to the project, not a boon, is like textbook perfectionist resolution strategy. For several years, I've adhered to the advice that if you are a perfectionist, you kind of have to stop yourself at about 90% of the job done, because at that point, it is almost certainly good enough, if not exceeding expectations already. And if you try to get to your personal standard of 100%, you might miss a deadline or drive yourself up a wall or burn out. You've got to know when to cut yourself off. So props to the Human Genome Project for modeling that, even in a scientific and technical way rather than in an artistic field. But what was it exactly that they were up against? What were these practical constraints at the time? Continuing from The Guardian, quote, Sequencing a genome is something like slicing up a book into snippets of text and then trying to reconstruct the book by piecing them together again. Stretches of text that contain a lot of common or repeated words and phrases would be harder to put in their correct place than more unique pieces of text. New, long-read sequencing technologies that decode big chunks of DNA at once, enough to capture many repeats, helped overcome this hurdle. Scientists were able to simplify the puzzle further by using an unusual cell type that only contains DNA inherited from the father. Most cells in the body contain two genomes, one from each parent. Together, these two advances allowed them to decode more than three billion letters that comprise the human genome. End quote. In total, Reuters notes, researchers identified about 2,000 new genes of a total of almost 20,000 in the full genome, and additionally, they identified about 2 million additional genetic variants. Dr. Adam Philippi of the National Human Genome Research Institute and co-chair of the international consortium that led the project said in a statement, quote, In the future, when someone has their genome sequenced, we will be able to identify all of the variants in their DNA and use that information to better guide their healthcare. Truly finishing the human genome sequence was like putting on a new pair of glasses. Now we can clearly see everything. We're one step closer to understanding what it all means. 
end quote. And some of what it all means may be found in centromeres, the center part of the chromosomes that hold them together and are pulled apart during cell division. Because centromeres contain thousands of stretches of repeating DNA sequences, they've previously been considered unmappable, according to The Guardian, but these new findings are providing further details and insights. Likewise, a lot of the repeating stretches of DNA that were sequenced are the ones specifically where a lot of human genetic variation is found, and therefore may help us understand how humans evolved over time, particularly in terms of the rapid development of complex cognition. Which is to say, with these new tools in hand, the work is just beginning. It is, as Green describes it, quote, the always sought yet rarely attained ambition in science, the dream of completion. He continues, quote, with a complete sequence of the human genome now in hand, our work continues in understanding how the human genome functions, how our genomes differ from one another, including across the world's many diverse populations, how those differences influence our health, and how information about those differences can be used to improve the practice of medicine. This is the joy of science and research. The work is never complete. Each advance opens new vistas of opportunities with the frequent sense that the best is still yet to come. I certainly continue to believe that is true for human genomics, and I'm excited to see what the next technology, the next researcher, and the next consortium bring. I find myself both proud and content with what genomics has brought us to date, a combination of essentially complete, truly complete, and otherwise. End quote. It's one of the earliest viral videos on the internet, posted before YouTube was even a thing. The original file, before it was remixed and reposted on countless sites, was uploaded to Kazaa. And like everything else on the peer-to-peer -peer file sharing network, the creator of the video had no idea it had been taken from him and hosted there. I'm talking, of course, about the infamous Star Wars Kid video, a just under two minute video featuring then 15 year old Canadian Ghislaine Raza goofing around with a golf ball retriever and pretending it's a Darth Maul style double sided lightsaber. Raza shot the video himself in his school's TV studio, but forgot to take the tape home with him, and it was later discovered by classmates who uploaded it to Kazaa. From there, someone added CGI glowing saber effects and music to the clip, and it started taking off in the blogosphere, leading to endless other edits and remixes. Know Your Meme estimates the video has now been viewed over one billion times. The most prominent blogger to post both the original and the first CGI-edited version was Andy Bayo of Waxy.org, something he now deeply regrets doing. Because the thing is, despite how cool those CGI effects were, especially back in 2003, hardly anyone was sharing any version of the video because it was cool. It went viral because people thought it was funny. Because people thought Raza was funny. A dweeby teenager who thinks he's cool but epically fails. The negative attention led Raza to change schools, and his parents to file a lawsuit against the families of his classmates that uploaded the video. Since 2003, he's only publicly spoken about the video once, on the 10-year anniversary of the video and to a French-language magazine in his home province of Quebec, in order to raise awareness about cyberbullying and to show the kids out there that it can get better. 
Now, nearly 20 years since the video was first posted, he's breaking his silence again, and this time in a big way. For the last few years, he's been working with a documentary crew to produce Star Wars Kid, The Rise of the Digital Shadows, which is now available to stream on the National Film Board of Canada's website in both French and English. Now, I heard about the doc through Andy Bayo's website, in which he mentions that, like Raza, he has declined every interview request about the video since 2003, writing, quote, I've never talked about it publicly, but I regret ever posting it. From the start, it was obvious it was never meant to be seen, and mirroring it on my site without consent was wrong in a way that I couldn't see when I was in my 20s one year into blogging. I removed the videos once it was clear how it was affecting him, but I never should have posted them in the first place, end quote. Not only did he remove the videos from his site, but he also started a fundraiser for Raza to raise $400 to get him an iPod in order to, quoting a Los Angeles Times article from 2003, compensate him for the mocking he had encountered and as a token of appreciation from fellow geeks everywhere. End quote. And turns out, despite the relentless harassment from most, there were a ton of people who felt for Raza and saw themselves in him. Instead of $400, they raised $4,300 and received a bunch of other gifts for Raza, including games, merch, and a replica Darth Maul lightsaber signed by Ray Park. And while Raza accepted the donations, telling the National Post at the time that the trouble people went through for that gesture touched him more than the amount of money, and confirming to Bayo last year that he used the extra money to buy an iMac G4, Bayo knows that none of that can delete what he helped amplify in the first place. Bayo was interviewed for the documentary and got to speak with Raza for the very first time ever. He wrote yesterday on the same blog that first spread the videos to the masses, quote, More than anything, it was great to finally talk to him in person and see that he's doing well. By all accounts, he handled everything that happened back then with a profound emotional maturity, despite how painful it was, and emerged on the other side with a uniquely interesting perspective that's worth listening to. End quote. If you want to hear that perspective, again, you can stream Star Wars Kid, The Rise of the Digital Shadows on the National Film Board of Canada's website, link in the show notes. Bayo notes that the original French title of the film is Dans l'ombre du Star Wars Kid, which translates to In the Shadow of the Star Wars Kid, which Bayo says, quote, feels much more fitting to the story they told. End quote. Now, I haven't watched the whole movie yet, but I'd have to agree that we are all, in many ways, living in the shadow of the Star Wars kid. Know Your Meme points out, quote, The Star Wars Kid phenomenon coincided with the adoption of broadband internet subscriptions in the United States, which jumped 23% between 2000 and 2003. Having initially circulated prior to the emergence of video sharing sites like YouTube, the Star Wars Kid phenomenon may be seen as one of the first instances of a massively consumed online video, a forebear to a now robust online video culture supporting a much deeper dimension for regular feedback, mashups, and parody, end quote. The video emerged at a time when we had a perfect storm for technology that enabled sharing, a very harsh, punked and jackass-dominated kind of public humor, and less familiarity with how our actions online could impact others, because we hadn't yet seen how many small actions could combine into ruining a person's life, because we hadn't seen it happen to Star Wars Kid yet. Thankfully, he's come out on the other side and has a good, fulfilled life now, 
But there's certainly something at least fascinating, if not educational, about seeing someone who was memefied when that word was only beginning to take on the definition it has today, and seeing how he's doing now. BuzzFeed has done this to a certain extent with their I Accidentally Became a Meme series on YouTube, which alternates each episode between cringeworthy in these subjects attempt to monetize their fame, empowering for the same reason but done better, or all-out heartbreaking for how the internet completely destroyed the person's life. People have been accidentally made famous, put under a microscope, and publicly shamed for no good reason for eons, but the internet, and social media in particular, seem to have made the experience more insidious and much more difficult to ever escape. And thanks to the disaster that is YouTube autoplay, after watching a teaser for Star Wars Kid The Rise of Digital Shadows today, I was served up a trailer for a new Marilyn Monroe documentary coming out on Netflix later this month called The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes, which features previously unheard tapes from the 1992 investigation into her death and other archival materials from the final weeks of her life. Marilyn Monroe, like Andy Warhol, whose previously unheard audio diaries are also the subject of a new Netflix documentary, seems to be having a bit of a moment, which, given what I just said about people whose fame transfigures them into more of a thought in strangers' heads than their own person, and the historical turning points in media and celebrity culture, I guess makes sense that folks like Monroe and Warhol would be of interest to people in this particular moment. But anyways, the new Marilyn Monroe Netflix documentary complements another Netflix film slated to be released at a yet-unannounced date this year called Blonde, which is a biopic about Marilyn Monroe based on a novel of the same name by Joyce Carol Oates. The film was directed by Andrew Dominic, produced by Brad Pitt, and stars Anna Armas as Monroe, alongside Adrian Brody as Arthur Miller, and Bobby Cannavale as Joe DiMaggio. It's also gotten a fair bit of attention due to its NC-17 rating. It all sounds quite intriguing and pretty heavy, but I am particularly amused by director Dominic's response to rumors about the movie, saying, quote, It's a demanding movie. If the audience doesn't like it, that's the effing audience's problem. It's not running for public office. End quote. Of course, he used much stronger language, and while I'm not about to defend a movie I haven't seen yet inspired by an author who has tended to toe the line into territory I disagree with recently, I will say it's refreshing to hear a filmmaker acknowledge that his movie isn't running for public office. Like, I love big blockbusters and all that, and I get the money-go-round of filmmaking that requires a certain amount of pleasing broad audiences, but there's something to be said for making the art that you personally want to make and not giving a crap what anyone else thinks, especially in the era of algorithm chasing and missteps that can launch a thousand tweets. Ending the week with a fun fact that I learned yesterday. So I've mentioned the podcast 20,000 Hertz before. Hosted by Dallas Taylor, each episode digs into the stories behind some of our world's most recognizable sounds, like the Netflix ta sound, the dings of newer home appliances, Simlish, and most recently, the voices of the New York City and London underground rail systems. Now, having lived in New York City 
for 12 years now, it absolutely blew my mind to hear Dallas interview Charlie Pellet, the man behind the stand clear of the closing doors, please announcements on the subway. There's a lot of fascinating stuff to his story, but here are two takeaways. First, he's British. He moved to the States as a small child and changed his accent because he was bullied for it. But yes, the New York City subway announcer is British. And he's in that super popular Bang song by AGR. You know, the one that was all over TikTok for a while back in 2020. It's the one that goes... Here we go. That's Charlie Pellet saying, here we go. The New York City-based band reached out to him for a live show gag years ago, and since they still had his contact info, decided to invite him to record some lines for their song, which has now gone on to hit number eight on the charts and win top rock song at the Billboard Music Awards. You can hear more about Charlie Pellet and about the London Underground on the most recent episode of 20,000 Hertz, link in the show notes. Between that and the Star Wars Kid documentary, there's plenty to enjoy this weekend. And that's going to be it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.